This is CliffCentral.com. What does justice require in terms of wrongs committed in the past or in terms of inequality of opportunity? If justice requires compensatory or corrective measures, is there any tension at all between affirmative action and freedom? What different kinds of affirmative action are there? And is it possible that some kinds of affirmative action are more likely to foster freedom and justice for disadvantaged individuals, whereas other kinds, somewhat paradoxically, are more likely to stand in the way of such freedom and justice? On today's episode of Freedom Versus, we examine the important nuances of the topic of affirmative action. This show is brought to you by the Friedrich Naumann Foundation for Freedom and hosted by Gwen and Gwenya and Mark Oppenheimer. So, Gwen, I hold a, an odd view on affirmative action. So, I'm in favor of affirmative action. I just don't think it's synonymous with race-based affirmative action. So, I think that when you're addressing the wrongs of the past, and especially in South Africa where there have been severe wrongs, that we ought to take measures to compensate those individuals that have been disadvantaged. Mm-hmm. And so, I think when we're designing an affirmative action system, that what we should be doing is assessing who is disadvantaged. And I don't think that that's always going to be synonymous with race. We can't use race as a proxy for disadvantage always. So if we think about the difference between you know, someone who grows up in a, in a poor township versus someone whose um, father is somewhere in Poza, they may share the same racial group, but they're in very different circumstances. Um, now, whenever I mention the sort of non-racial view that I have, and I point at Section 1 of the Constitution, which says that South Africa is a nation founded on the value of non-racialism, um, I'm either met with sort of shrugs of you seem to be speaking nonsense and this is utterly bizarre, I've never heard this before, uh, or outright hostility. What are your views on the topic? Yeah. Well, I, I agree with you in the sense that for me what's problematic about um, you know lumping people in a particular racial category is that it does then provide the opportunity for people to benefit on others' behalf. So I think one of the core issues against firms of action policies as they have been articulated in South Africa is the fact that they create almost proxy beneficiaries. So the idea that when I benefit, I benefit on behalf of you know swaths of other people. And I think although we have moved into a technical jargon of broad-based, you know, black economic empowerment, there is still a huge gap in terms of addressing the, the barriers to economic access for for the majority of people, as opposed to them being focused on a, a political few, and I and I think it's it's articulated not just in um, you know for example B policies, but what we're seeing now um, in the language of radical economic transformation as one of the key policy items, their program items, is the black industrialist policy. And again, it's, I think they're allocating 23 billion rand to create a hundred black industrialists. Mm. So for me, I'm still concerned about the mass impact of those government interventions because, well, if you want to make a hundred people rich, you might as well give them 300 million rand each because, you know, you spent about 23 billion. Um, <laughs> you know, why go, go about the farce of saying that they're industrialists and, you know, going to be, you know, players in industry, et cetera. And I think if you really want to impact um, millions of Africans, you you have to look at the economic barriers, um, which don't necessarily always represent themselves racially. It means you want to look at, for example, education barriers, um, perhaps even um, 
institutional culture. And you may disagree with me, but I don't think it's a bad thing for companies and institutions to ask themselves whether or not they aren't exclusive to people from a particular background. But that's a very different exercise than saying, you know, figures or outputs must then be imposed on them by, by government. So to my mind, there's three different types of firm action policies that you could have. Yes. So there are those that um, try to correct the injustices of the past, giving out compensation. And there are those that care about current day practices, where you do that, that hard introspective work and you say, you know, is this a, a racially hostile environment? You know, are there certain practices that we're unaware of and that are discriminatory? Or maybe you've got very overt discriminatory practices and you want to dismantle that stuff. Um, and then you, the other kind of argument that's put forward is one about racial diversity. So the idea that, you know, as a company or an organization, uh, your, your staff ought to mirror the racial demographics of South Africa. What are your views on that? Well, I think they raised three different, you know, considerations. The first two, I think, are, for me, are, are you can't you can't separate them. I think in addressing um, disadvantage, it's, it is a. I mean, we have to recognize that disadvantage comes from somewhere. It is a historical disadvantage. I just don't think the best way you address historical disadvantage or ensure equity in the workplace in the future is by you know having a classification such as race. Um, so for me, I'm not. Maybe you'll explain a bit more, but I'm not quite understand the distinction between addressing historical wrongs. Opposed to future, um, you know, f- future redress. So on this, let's chat about but, this briefly. Then. Sure. Um, so if, let's say, for example, you're saying um, certain individuals have been treated very badly, and we want to give them preference in our workplace. So let's say, for example, that you and I have been running a race for a while. Okay, and you've been running in chains, and I've been running unencumbered. Okay, and halfway through the race, someone says, "Hold on, this is really unfair." And I say, "Okay, well, it's simple. What we'll do is we'll remove the chains." Then we're only dealing with the current state of affairs, the sort of we're correcting for now, but mm-hmm. that's not sufficient. You know, in order for you to be treated fairly, we need to put you in a position that you would have been had you not had the change in the first place, which would require some special preference. Um, so the two are different in that case. You know, the one is about advancing someone who has suffered a genuine wrong in the past, and the other is about creating an environment where you don't put any chains on anyone now going forward. Um, so I think you can draw that distinction there. I think in practice, though, it becomes um, really an an important distinction for me because what you want to look at is to realize that the whole system of apartheid going further back, colonialism, wasn't just about one one thing. So it was quite systematic. So you do want to look at the fact that it's about inferior education systems, spatial Mm. inequality, etc. So if you look at it as, you know, an entire system, that there might be wide-ranging criteria that you might want to use in your assessment, um, in planning that in the future and saying that we actually want to perhaps give preferential access, maybe this part we might disagree, to people who've gone to, let's say, lower quintile schools, who live very far from places of work, etc. So you use that to come up with a kind of disadvantaged score system as opposed to one that's based on race. I think that would speak to, obviously, that person's presence scenario, mm. but it, and of course that amalgamation of factors would not have been the case were it not for the historical um, situation. So I, I, I see those things as quite intertwined. I, I think it would be very rare today to find someone who's gone to a low quintile school, who's a first generation person, their family to perhaps get a university degree, who lives far from place of work, has a family income below a certain figure, um, where that collection of factors is not for them associated with the past, where it's something new. Mm. No, so I think that's very I, fair, that there will be a dovetailing yes, of these two interests. So in your view, if we're not going to use race as a proxy for disadvantage, what are the things that we would look at to determine disadvantage? 
well, I've, I've been mentioning some of them and I think, you know, we can't be facetious about it and think that I'm going to maybe name all the factors now, mm-hmm. but it, there are some very clear socioeconomic indicators related to education, so spatial inequality, your family income, maybe even access to healthcare, et cetera, that could form part of some disadvantaged means test. And it sounds like a lot of work, but it's really not unique in terms of administrations um, around the world and even maybe in other areas where we might want to assess economic need, but maybe not necessarily racial need. So I think benchmarks for these kind of studies do exist. And I think by doing so, we can more identify, better identify the group of beneficiaries who truly need, um, whether it's preferential access um, or, or attention, whatever that particular policy measure is, as opposed to using race, which whilst most of the time is a useful proxy, I think it, it does run a huge risk. And in fact, one which the empirical evidence bears out of being used by those who are far more um, politically connected and in a position to who in fact probably don't need those that that empowerment to then receive benefit on behalf of those who do. Mm. So I think it's that, as I highlight in the beginning, that system of proxy beneficiaries that is, that really renders a system of affirmative action not viable. And then also your third point about um, you know diversity and using race as an argument is that the problem there is that affirmative action doesn't really guarantee diversity. And if you argue that it does then you're making a, you know, a statement of real racial determinism that just because you're black, you will share these particular values or you will contribute X to our institution, whereas that's not true. Values and ideas and con- you know, the various competencies that people have are not determined by the level of melanin. Um, so I, I think it's facetious to say that people add diversity by being from um, different racial groups. Mm. It's quite possible to be in a diverse room racially, but find that actually all of those people on the same political party, let's say you're talking politics or part of the same economic viewpoint. Um, so I, I think that's a problematic way to view diversity. Yes, we need to just pause and say diversity of what? You know, diversity of race, you say, doesn't guarantee diversity of anything else necessarily. Yeah. And that's what you really ought to care about, as you say, are diversity of experiences, diversity of ideas, you know, diversity exactly. of ways of problem solving. Those things seem to matter. Um, but racial diversity might be more akin to something like height or hair color, you know, um, rather arbitrary. And I think most people actually would agree because when we hear about people talking about diversity, that's usually actually what they mean. Um, it's just a poor word choice in my opinion. That, that, that is, that's usually what they have in mind. They think that through the racial representation that matches with the demography of the country, etc., you will have better diversity of views and opinions and that people will add something interesting to that particular environment. And I you know, and what we're saying is that that's not really um, a good indicator of, of diversity in terms of those those values. I mean, at the heart of it is this idea that, you know, people are not interchangeable for other members of their race. You know, the idea that all black people are the same and yes. are all representatives just seems inherently repugnant to me. You know, um, you know, I certainly don't see myself as representative of any racial group. You know, I'm mock. You know, yeah. and I have my own set of unique and odd views on things. Um, and I'm not interchangeable people that happen to look like me. Um, and that's a very dangerous idea. The other thing that, that I find very disturbing about this sort of quest for racial representativity is that it requires a classification system. So during apartheid, we had a, we had a system where, you know, administrators would determine what your race was. And you would go through a series of humiliating inspections where someone would put a pencil in your hair or, you know, put a panettone sheet next to your skin and see whether you, you know, could pass as, you know, Indian or colored or white or black or whatever it is. Um, 
And I was speaking to a colleague about this recently mm. and saying how repugnant I find it. And she says that it's commonplace in corporates now that what happens is um, you'll seek an auditing firm to come in and they will do a racial audit. So they will say, we note that you know, you've listed the following employees as being part of this particular racial group. We'd like to see them, please. And they invite you into the room and then they ask you a series of humiliating questions to determine whether you are lying about your race. Hmm. Now, I, I just I can't grasp that we can still be doing this, you know, 23 years into democracy, um, while recognizing there's something so repugnant about race classification, um, and still using it as a barometer for determining, you know, people's worth. Uh, again, we keep forgetting about this value of non-racialism. Mm-hmm. I, I think that is problematic, but I would. I mean, at least with my experience, and that sounds a very problematic practice to have. Um, mm. I think the, the, the usual practice, the norm has been to allow people to self-identify. But of course, that system as well is inherent with its own difficulties because as you say, well, if I choose to identify as a race that I'm quite clearly in terms of the maybe more traditional ways of identifying, you know, by the way I look, if I'm not that race, then it does present challenges for, for those who are auditing, um, um, or for compliance reasons for yes. those particular policies. But I think something we didn't quite conclude on earlier was to discuss, okay, fine. So we have now this, the system of whether it's uh, based on a socioeconomic means or whether it's based on race. But the key idea, as you were mentioning, is should preference be given to, so how now do you design policies to, to address this challenge of, of, of disadvantage, whether it's disadvantage based on, on race or whether we actually now have a comprehensive socioeconomic means test, do you have a problem with preferential treatment? Now that we've solved, how do we identify the beneficiaries? So I think there's three different kinds of preference policies you can have. So the first being a tiebreaker one. So let's assume we're talking about economic disadvantaged individuals, social disadvantaged. We're not talking about race. Mm -hmm. Um, We could say, well, when you have two candidates that are equally meritorious, um, but the one comes with a disadvantaged background, we choose them. That's the tiebreaker. The other one is that you have some sort of strong preference for it. So you could allocate points on the basis of someone's disadvantage and decide how much that's going to weigh against merit. But you have to then realize that you are putting your thumb on the scales, but you might think that you're doing so for a just reason, which is to compensate for prior wrongs. Okay. And the third would be some sort of set-aside policy where you say these jobs can only be occupied by people that are in the, um, the disadvantaged class. And then I think it depends on the context in which you're operating to decide which of those policies is just. So let's say, for example, you're talking about um, government supply of sanitation. Okay. So there was a, a scandal a couple of years ago um, where there were a bunch of unoccupied positions uh, in a municipality. And what happened was um, water um, got, in, got infected with disease and a whole bunch of kids died. Okay. And one of the arguments was it's because there was no one working in this position. And so you wind up with a whole bunch of very poor, vulnerable people um, you know, um, being placed in this, awkward, this awful position of their kids dying, you know, or getting sick because you've decided that, you know, um, you wanted to put your, you've, you had a racial set aside in that case. Mm. Um, so I think it depends who's going to be affected by this person's appointment. Um, there are times when you can only care about merit. You can say this is an impact assessment and it's going to affect a whole bunch of other people mm. who are often very vulnerable. The most meritorious person must be here. At other times, you might think that it's perfectly fine to put your thumb on the scales. So that's important to do that sort of that context-based exercise. 
Yeah. I think there's a danger maybe in it devolving to a very sort of technical discussion about the measures. But I think in a broad sense, I would welcome, you know, a points-based system where hopefully the points towards those socioeconomic criteria wouldn't be so um, sort of weighty that they would then completely outweigh a merit at all. So you'd want to think there's, you know, it might give you an extra edge if you're both a, a meritorious candidate, but then come from a disadvantaged background that, you know, the points you would gain from those socioeconomic considerations might then push ahead as the, as the clear candidate. But they wouldn't be so significant as to rule out or to put in place a candidate just purely because they come from a disadvantaged background but actually not be totally incompetent for the position. So I think there's two things we want to add. The one is that you want a minimum threshold of qualification. You know, the yes. idea is if you're um, if you're a firm hiring um, attorneys, the minimum qualification is that you have an LLB and you've been admitted as an attorney. Mm-hmm. So we've already got that quality threshold. The other one is that I think we should think about merit properly. So let's say you've got, the, again, my two candidates who look equal. They both got um, A's for matric, let's say. Mm-hmm. Okay. And the one candidate went um, to a very, very poor school and the other one went to a very well-off private school. To my mind, they are not equal on merit. The person who went to the poor school and got an A is exceptional. They have this of additional course, yes. ability to have you know, um, achieved incredible things under difficult odds. But that's exactly why candidates. you would give weight to those social indicators. To so I think balance um, any, you know, for as as you say, to balance. Okay, in, in that case, there's similar qualifications, but I would think that those um, those the, those those socioeconomic criteria might balance someone with slightly even less scores and then push mm. them over the edge because of that recognition. The fact that a C grade in a poor performing school is not really the same as getting a B at a well-resourced private school with all the extra tutors and exactly. bells and whistles that come with it. But that's exactly the point of then giving some weight to the socioeconomic factors. I think it's a two-step process. So the first we ask ourselves is who is generally uh, meritorious? But when we do that exercise, we take into account things like virtue. So, you know, are you able to overcome difficult obstacles? You know, something that's incredibly useful in the work environment. Yes. And that's a pure merit question. And it might be that because you've come from a, you know, disadvantaged background, you are more meritorious. And then the second question is, do we want to push the, put our thumb on the scales and give additional points? Um, and I think both of those things can be thought of. Um, but you might think that the, just reinvestigating merits and, you know, really thinking about who is the better candidate is sufficient in a lot of cases. Um, mm-hmm. That we really are picking those candidates that are hardworking, that are able to overcome difficulty and contribute in all sorts of incredible ways in a work environment. Yeah. So I have an interesting question for you. I mean, this is something I don't actually, I don't think I have a fixed position on it myself, but it's something I think about is when we're talking about representativity, and this is now going back to those who might be in favor of a, a kind of demographic representativity, mm. whether it's in the workplace or when institution is the fact that to a large extent that relies on a counterfactual statement. So I've uh, my inclination or sort of my resistance towards these demographic uh, figures is the sense that let's say we could create this perfect world, this perfect starting point where they had, you know, there was no apartheid and we all have a similar income level, we all have a master's degree and, and whatever it is. How can you guarantee that, let's say, that 80% of black South Africans are population, that 80% of them would proportionally across all professions and across all levels choose that, that job? Hmm. You might quite naturally find, and as we currently do in South Africa, and I'm not a sociologist, so maybe it has its own background reasons, but the preference, and I saw it myself when I was at university, for example, in medical school, where you have a great number of um, 
uh, in terms of the classification, Indians and Asians who apply to go into into medicine. And w- it would be quite bizarre to say to them, no, you, sh- you should distribute yourselves more equally amongst the professions. We actually think, you know, if there are five percent of you in the population, only five percent of you should become doctor. You know, should be doctors in this in this area. Five, per- there should be five percent of you as architects, five percent of you as farmers, etc. Whereas you might just find no. Indian person may just choose to be a farmer. And I'm not sure if that's necessarily problematic. So I think there's, there's to some extent, room for us to consider what the counterfactual position would be if it were not for apartheid. Would there be this, you know, very rigid mix? Well, you raise a, a remarkably good point, which is that what we should care about is, is there some injustice that's gone on that's led to this skewed representation? Okay. If there was such an injustice, it should be cured. But it doesn't follow that because you have an, an anomalous distribution that there was an injustice. So as you mm-hmm. point out, it happens to be the case that Indian kids are attracted to med school. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, so, I don't want to be too deterministic about that, but I think in yes. general we yeah. – yeah. So there's a, there's a South African constitutional court case um, where um, in the Western Cape the government said that there are too many coloreds working in the correctional services department. Yes, I'm okay? familiar with that. And we're case. going to put a cap on it. Okay. Um, and this idea that, you know, you're overrepresented here. You know? Yes. And it might just be for. And that Mania statement, colored should disperse themselves more equally in the population. Yes. Or there's an overrepresentation of colored Yes, exactly. In the you, know? you would do better if you, yes. you left your home and went exactly. elsewhere, you know. Uh, that sort of forced removal sort of implication, you know, also very repugnant. But it might just be the case that certain communities have certain preferences and that they are very interested in working in certain sectors. Yes. So there's a famous case in California that, um, 90% of donut stores in California are, are run by Cambodians. Mm. Okay. Now, Cambodians didn't use any illicit measures to get control of the donut industry. You know, what happens is just an accident of history. Someone comes out from Cambodia, they arrive in California, they start a business, it prospers, they invite their friends, they say, hey, I'm in the donut business, you know, why don't you start a franchise? And you just have this clustering effect. The idea that we should strip Cambodians of their donut stores because it's not racially demographically, you know, representative just seems inherently repugnant, right? Yeah. You know, we want to accept that there are going to be strange distributions and that's okay. It only matters whether people got there through unjust means. Yes. And in fact, I, I asked this question about, um, you know, this question because I actually wanted to, to lead into how do we measure, you know, or should we be measuring anything? Because if we say we must focus, be focused on inputs opposed mm. to outputs, is it still worth measuring what the effects of these inputs are? So now we have this, you know, perfect socioeconomic means test that clearly identifies all the factors that, you know, act as obstacles to those who are disadvantaged. But now do we actually want to measure the results of, you know, of, of, of this process? Because I think for me, Pardon answering the counterfactualist because I don't think there is some desired state of representativity. Mm. All we can do is create the inputs that create um, a certain environment that gives access to opportunities to the widest number of people. But then it becomes then pointless to measure the results of that, which I don't know, maybe for some people sounds strange. Why would you want to implement a policy that you don't measure? Um, or if you do measure it, you only measure the inputs, the mm. outputs. You say, well, that's just up to chance and it's up to what people choose. Then a very, maybe it might sound a strange way of designing policy, but in this particular case, where we're concerned about racial determinism, what the counterfactual scenario might be, of you know it, all of the things that we've discussed during um, you know well, this conversation, sort of different approaches to things, right? So yeah. that those that care about freedom 
I'm going to take the line that you take, which is, is there a fair process? Was everyone yes. free to make choices in the system? Was there anything co- coercive which was stopping them? As opposed to, let's say, the totalitarian who says, there are certain outcomes that we want. We don't care about processes and fairness. We want a certain state of affairs. Mm-hmm. And however we can engineer that, you know, that is justice. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and so this is where we see this clash between, you know, freedom and other values um, that we're going to be comfortable with. Um, there being different distributions. We're going to say, was it fair that everyone had a fair go at this? You know, were they free to make choices? Um, and that's what seems to really matter to my mind. But if we're not going to measure that end state, I do have an inclination to feel that we have to be then absolutely rigorous about ensuring that equality of opportunity. And mm. I think that's, that's so important. Um, you know, a, a key figure in terms of this transformation debate is the fact that people just look at the, the demographic profile, but we've, we've hinted a lot at it during um, you know, our, our discussion is the fact that until educational outcomes actually keep pace or match the demographic splits in the population, by that I mean, to the extent where all people of all racial groups, no matter the background you come from, until they're all achieving the same educational outcomes, there's always going to be the skills deficit in particular racial groups, which prevents them from, you know, being as successful as perhaps those who might have more, more, more opportunity. Mm. So I think it's, you know, it's, it's so important that if we are going to abandon a racialized way of viewing outputs, that we become absolutely rigorous about ensuring a quality of opportunity. And I think sometimes that's where it gets lost in the communication of, of policies that articulate affirmative action a different way that where you might say, look, we are pro affirmative action. We do want to you know, give a step up to those are disadvantaged, but it's going to be based on, on a means test on inputs as opposed to measuring the outputs. But some, somehow in that communication, the sense that it's a caring policy or that it's really addressing the injustice of the past, it, people interpret it as a let's move on and forget what happened approach. And I think it's quite important that it's seen as actually a very rigorous way to deal with the injustice of the past. Well, to conclude, what I think you're saying is that we need to always be vigilant. That's, you know, you have to keep an eye on equality of opportunity always throughout the development of your society, that this is vital for us. Mm. Um, but, you know, justice doesn't require the sort of output bean counting, as you've pointed out. Um, but I think we've had a, you know, a really novel, interesting conversation yes, today. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks from me, Cecilia Koch from the Friedrich Naumann Foundation for Freedom, for joining us for this episode of Freedom Versus. We hope you found it thought-provoking. And thanks to Mtoba Chapi for the editing, visuals and graphics, and Greg Cohen for the audio. Please subscribe to our podcast and our YouTube channel, Freedom Versus. That's two words, and versus is spelled V-E-R-S-U-S. There, you can watch the discussions between Gwen and Mark. Our YouTube channel also features additional content. Enjoy! This is CliffCentral.com.